Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. I want to tell you something. I woke up thinking about this. I love Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the Word of God, the Son of God, the love of God, very God of very God. I love Jesus Christ and I love His church. You know what the church is? People. People. People that have gathered around Jesus. And if the only thing we have in common is Jesus, that's enough. It's the amazing thing. And so we become this diverse gathering of people. I love Jesus Christ. I love his church. I love the church here. And I love the church that's gathering online. I'm going to talk to the online congregation for just like a second. I want to say, I know that for many of you, we are a lifeline. It's how you're holding on. And I just want to say, hold on. We're, we're by the grace of God, we're happy to throw you the lifeline. Now hold on. Amen. All right. Five years ago, I walked for 40 days across northern Spain, contemplating crucifixes. And all the while asking this question, what does this mean? What does it mean that the Son of God was crucified and that somehow our salvation, the salvation of the world, is found in that? What does this mean? That's the question we're asking as we move deep into the mystery of the cross during the season, the holy season of Lent. As I told you last Sunday, whatever the cross means, it's not just one thing. It means many things, and it means everything pertaining to salvation. Last Sunday, we saw how the cross is the eternal moment of forgiveness, where all of the sin is gathered in one singularity that it might be forgiven in mass. Today, we will look at how the cross is the enduring model of discipleship. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So it was like this. Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus had said, you're blessed, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And you're a rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, you know we're going to Jerusalem, right? And of course they knew that because when Peter confesses he's the Christ, that means he's the king. But you know, if you're the king, someday you got to get out of the provinces and go to the capital. It's one thing to say, you know, you're the king out in the hinterlands of Galilee, but if you're really the king, you're going to have to go to Jerusalem to be crowned. And Jesus says, so you know we're going to Jerusalem, right? Yeah, we know that. And I want you to know that I'm going to be rejected. And I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be turned over into the hands of sinful men, and they will beat me, scourge me, crucify me, kill me. But on the third day, I'll be raised. That's when Peter said, come here, Jesus, come here, come here, Jesus, come here, come here, come here. Jesus, don't, don't talk like that, man. Don't say stuff like that. We're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to win. We're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to succeed. You talk like that, you'll discourage people. How are people going to be your disciple? If they think you're going to just go and get killed, why would we follow that? I don't know what's got into you, Jesus, but you have to quit talking like that. This will never happen to you. This must never happen to you, Jesus. To which Jesus just said, shut up, Satan. Get behind me. Whew. From you are a rock to get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus said, hey, everybody, come around, come here, everybody. Now, just the disciples, everybody, everybody, come here, come here. I think we're going to have to clarify some things. And he says, if any of you, if any of you, 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 if any of you, if any of you want to become my follower, fantastic. Here's the terms. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me. So what is the enduring model of discipleship? It's to deny the primal yet fallen instinct to prioritize our own security, self-interest, and success. And to instead voluntarily choose to imitate what Jesus does on the cross. So the cross becomes not only something that Jesus did for us, it becomes the pattern for his disciples to follow. Now, I'm going to preach seven sermons what does this mean on the cross? Six of them are going to be about what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. But one of them, this one, is going to be about how the cross informs 
our discipleship. If I say to you now here in 2021, if I say something like, you know, Jesus calls us to take up our cross, you immediately hear that in a spiritual context. You know, it's just something about discipleship. It's something about self-denial. It's something about... But you understand that when Jesus first said that, no one, no one was spiritualizing a cross. A cross was what the hated occupiers used to psychologically terrorize and keep subdued this occupied populace. It must have been so jarring. You want to be my disciple? Great, fantastic. Uh, any, everybody can, but here's the terms. You deny yourself and take up your cross. I mean, they had seen crucifixion. Crucifixion was not uncommon. It's what happened to people who resist the way of domination from Rome. And Jesus said, we're going to invert, subvert all of that. Take up your cross because you might end up nailed to it, but that's the terms of discipleship. I want to read you something from Walter Brueggemann. Can you handle some Brueggemann in the morning? I love, I love Walter Brueggemann. I just... I mean, I really love that guy. And I want to read to you just the first paragraph of his foreword to Postcards from Babylon. Brueggemann writes, As long as the 16th century, as long ago, let me get it right, as long ago as the 16th century, Martin Luther boldly voiced a vigorous either-or for Christian faith in terms of a discipleship of glory or a theology of the cross. As long ago as the 16th century, Martin Luther boldly voiced a vigorous either or for Christian faith in terms of a theology of glory, that is a theology of victory, success, triumph. A theology of glory or a theology of the cross. By the former, Luther referred to an articulation of gospel faith that smacked of triumphalism that was allied with worldly power, that specialized in winning, control, and being first and being best. For Luther, that theology was all tied up with the European imperial of his time. By the contrast of a theology of the cross, Luther referred to the risky way of Jesus that is marked by humility, obedience and vulnerability standing in sharp contrast to and in opposition to the hunger for glory. The way of the cross for Luther is demanding and costly because it contradicts the dominant way of the world. Rock on Walter Brueggemann. A theology of glory or a theology of the cross. That's Luther says we have to choose as we as we as we think about and as we talk about Christian faith, we're going to have to choose between a theology of glory or think of it as victory. A theology of victory or a theology of the cross. Now, by a theology of glory, Luther, well, not just Luther. What we mean by that is success, winning, 
becoming number one. All of that kind of language. And there is certainly, absolutely, a way of reading the Bible through a lens of the theology of glory where we prioritize things like the conquest of Joshua, the wars of David, the glory of Solomon. But it's not the way of the cross. And it's not the way of Jesus. And it's not the way of discipleship. And it's not the way of salvation. Before Jesus began his ministry, you know, he went off into the wilderness for 40 days of preparation. Prayer and fasting, contemplation, where he faced a series of temptations from the devil. Turn the stones to bread. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Third temptation is that The devil takes Jesus up on a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world and their glory, their splendor. And the devil says, let's make a deal. I can give this all to you. I've given it to others. I can give it to you too. And then once it's yours, you can do what you want with it. No doubt you'll do all kinds of good because you're just that kind of guy. You can do whatever you want. I'll give it to you because I can. There's only one condition. Just, just a little. It doesn't have to be too much. Just a little bow. Just, just a little obeisance. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan. It is written. You shall worship the Lord your God alone, and him only shall you serve. The devil offered Jesus power. By the way that all of the powerful get their power. I mean, how does... Pharaoh become Pharaoh, and how does Caesar become Caesar and all that? Well, by force, by nomination, by crushing the opposition. And then they can tell themselves, you know, I'm called by God, or I'm going to do good things. It's the way it is. It's the temptation of uh, one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and then the darkness bind them. Jesus saw through that temptation. And he said, no, it's not going to come, listen to me, it's not going to come by the way of the sword. It's going to come by the cross. A constant temptation for the church. It was a temptation for Jesus, but now it's a temptation for the church. It's kind of always there. Constant temptation for the church is to choose the cross over the sword. Because the cross is so practical. You know, you're in control. It's, you see, you look at the world and you say, look, the world's, the world's bad. The world's bad. Why is the world bad? Because of bad guys. Well, let's just kill the bad guys. Problem solved. The world's bad. Why is it bad? Because of bad guys. What do we do? Let's kill the bad guys. And then the world will be good. We'll save the world. We'll save the world with the cross. It is a dominant ideology. There's, there's bad stuff over there. What should we do? Let's drop bombs on it. Let's kill it. 
funny thing is, it doesn't go away like that, does it? Keeps coming back. Well, it's the myth of redemptive violence that the world can be saved by the sword. That's why, by the way, by the way, just cleared up some things. That's why Jesus armed two disciples in the upper room so he could disarm them in the Garden of Gethsemane. Got any swords around here? Yeah, we got, we got how many? You got two, that's enough. And they go off to the Garden of Gethsemane. Thirteen men with two swords. And after Jesus has been praying a while, the mob comes to arrest him and they're armed too. They've got their swords and their clubs. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And the armed mob begins to arrest Jesus. And that's when Peter, you know Peter was going to be one of the two carrying the sword. He said, no, let me have it. I want it. Let me carry it. And so Peter's got the sword. And he says, teacher, shall we strike with the sword? And he doesn't wait for an answer. He's out, you know. He's, he's going to be a hero. These are bad guys. They're coming to rest. These are bad guys. And Jesus is a good guy, so we got to kill the bad guys. And Peter takes a swing and lops off a guy's ear. He wasn't trying to cut off his ear. He was trying to cut off his head, but he missed. And Jesus says, no more of this. Put it away. Peter, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. No more of this. Jesus armed them so he could disarm them and show us the other way. Now, one test of discipleship really is the choice to take up the sword. We can, we can make that a metaphor. The way of domination, the way of force, the way of asserting our will with violence if necessary. Or... To take up the cross, which is the, which is the way of, it's, it, it's loss. It's, it's, and I, I want to win, man. I want to win. I want to be number one. I want to succeed. And so I, I, want, I want to enforce my will, however necessary. But Jesus doesn't say, Jesus, what did he say? You want to follow me? Say no to your selfish ambitions and desires and self-interest. Say no to that and take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross. Because there's going to be dying along the way. There's going to be dying along the way. It's going to be dying. You know, you wonder how the movement ever got started. Who, who signs up for that? Well, if this one is God and this one is raised from the dead, that's a, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. Turns out, I mean, spoiler alert, he does get killed and he gets raised on the third day. Just like he said. And in light of that, that changes everything. But the God of this world still invites people to follow him. Take up your sword and follow me. If anyone wants to become my disciple, let them assert their rights Take up their sword and follow me. Man, that's popular. That, 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 that resonates with my sinful soul. That resonates with my fallen nature. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him assert his rights. Take up his sword and follow me. And then you have another one saying, if anyone wants to be my disciple, 
Say no to his self. Take up his cross and follow me. You see, in the life of discipleship, <laughs> we don't just stand around and go, Jesus, awesome man, that cross, you're saving the world. Hallelujah. We don't just stand around and cheer him on. Jesus says, no, no you take your cross too. I don't know about that, Jesus. The choice between the cross, self-denial, losing some things we really want, or the sword, domination, assert, assertiveness, assert, I, I want my way and I'm going to have it one way or the other. The choice between the cross and the sword is the choice between two saviors, both named Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus Barabbas. Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notable prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. A notable prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus who is called the Christ, Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man. For today I suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus who's called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Barabbas. First name, Jesus. Jesus bar Abbas. I bet you even know a little, you, more, you know more Hebrew than you think you do. Or Aramaic. What's Abba mean? Father. Bar, Simon Bar, Jonah was Bar mean. So, so what's his name? Jesus, son of the Father. It's a false Messiah. Jesus, son of the Father, or Jesus Christ. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth? Who was this Jesus Barabbas? Well, he was a revolutionary leader. He was sick and tired of the Romans. This isn't their land. This isn't their country. This isn't their people. They can just get out of here. He was a revolutionary leader who thought it's, it's time for a change. It's time for a revolution. 
It's time for the bad guys to pack up and go home. He's a revolutionary leader like Judah Maccabeus, like William Wallace, like George Washington, like Che Guevara. He is not a common criminal. He's not just some sort of maniacal serial killer. He is a revolutionary leader who is willing to kill on behalf of the revolutionary movement. He's a popular political prisoner. He's a hero. He's a hero. He's William Wallace. Freedom! That's Barabbas. So, do, so get, 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 get rid of that picture that he's just some sort of, you know, terrible murderer, killer, crazy guy. No, he's a hero. He's popular. That's what these two guys are too. These are not just common bandits. They're brigands, but here's what they are. They are part of this insurgency and they maintain themselves financially. They sustain the movement by robbing people out on the highways. Who are they robbing? Almost certainly they're robbing rich Jewish collaborators. People that are collaborating with Rome. They say, hey, they, you know, these clowns, they're cooperating with the bad guys. So we're going to rob them, finance our movement. They're Robin Hoods. And the ringleader is Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father, Messiah, the one that's going to liberate Israel because he's willing to fight. And he was supposed to be here. But then there was this choice given by the governor, Pontius Pilate. You know, I got this practice at Passover. You know, I grant clemency to one prisoner. Who do you want? They say, we want Jesus Barabbas. What about Jesus the Christ? No, we want Jesus Barabbas. Why? Because we want Jesus Barabbas. And then, then things get strange. Pilate's there on the judgment seat, the bema seat. He's presiding. He's judging. He's got to make a decision here. He doesn't like being drugged into this, but he, he's got to. He's the governor. And he's... He knows that Jesus is innocent, but the pressure's on from the Sanhedrin to release Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, and crucify Jesus of Nazareth. And he's going to have to make a decision, and suddenly uh, one of the staff members comes up and says, got a message from your wife. And he hands him a note from his wife, and he opens it up and says, Dear Pontius, have nothing to do with this innocent man. Because, man, I had a bad dream about him. I had a bad dream. And I read that in the Bible. So, so many times the Bible frustrates me. What, what's the dream? You're, you're not going to tell me what the dream was? I don't know what it was. Did she dream? Did she dream way into the future? Did she dream that... This Jesus of Nazareth would become the most famous person who ever lived. And that her husband would also be famous. Forever. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. The name Pontius Pilate will be on the lips of billions of people today. Confessing the Apostles' Creed. Did she dream that her husband 
would forever be associated with the greatest crime ever. Well, Jesus is condemned, you know that. He takes the place of Jesus Barabbas upon the cross. And what happens? <laughs> he becomes king of kings and lord of lords. Pilate told the truth. He put an inscription upon the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they said, no, 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 you got to change it. you got to change it. you got to change it, Pilate. you got to change it, Governor. Governor, you got to change it. you got to say, Jesus of Nazareth, he said he's king of the Jews. And Governor Pilate said, look, I've, I, I'm done with you guys. What I've written, I've written. And it's the truth. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king that comes from God. He's the Messiah. He's the king that becomes king of the Jews and the Gentiles and the king of kings and lord of lords. And this is what the church confesses. This is what the early church confessed about Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, and that they were saying that the crucified Christ is the king and the cross is his throne. And he reigns not with a sword in his hand, but he reigns from the cross. And then things got confusing. In the year 312... So like 300 years after, almost. 300 years almost of the church. In the year 312, there was yet another civil war going on in the Roman Empire. There was a vacancy because they didn't ever have good lines of succession. They never did in the Roman Empire. So every time a, an emperor died, which was mostly them getting killed by palace intrigues, now there's a vacuum and... Who's going to seize the reins? And there was two generals that were leading the civil war because they both wanted to don the imperial purple and rule the world. Everybody wants to rule the world. A guy named Constantine and a guy named Maxentius. And they're locked in a, they, you know, each of them have their armies. And, you know, Constantine says, I want to rule the world. Maxentius says, no, I want to rule the world. So they're having a war. And it comes down to a pivotal, decisive battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, October 28th, 312. The winner of this battle is going to win the war, become Caesar, rule the world. Now, as the tale is told, I don't believe it for a second. I think it's, it's a legend meant to sanitize the story. But as the story goes... On the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine saw a cross in the heavens with these words, in this sign you shall conquer. That's what that Greek says up there, right there. In this sign, with this sign, in the sign of the cross you shall conquer. Which is a euphemism for kill, by the way. And so Constantine orders that the cross be affixed to the weapons of war as a kind of magic talisman to give them power to kill. And guess who wins the Battle of the Milvian Bridge? Of course, it's Constantine. And he becomes emperor. And soon thereafter, Christianity becomes the favored religion in the Roman Empire, and soon after that, the official religion 
of the Roman Empire. But a great distortion has occurred to the cross. The cross is back to being a symbol of killing. Because now it's on the weapons of war. And, you know, you'll see it reaches extreme manifestation, you know, in about what it would be about 1,100 years, about 1,000 years, 900 years with the Crusades. So what does the cross symbolize? I mean, I mean these, these Roman crosses that were common in the land, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. And what, what is the symbol? It's a symbol of domination through violence. We rule the world, and you better like it, or at least don't let us know you don't like it, because if you do, we'll put you on one of those. So it's a way of terrorizing and subduing, dominating. So it's, what is it a symbol of? It's a symbol of domination through violence. And then the Son of God ends up on one of those. And is raised from the dead. And it changes the symbol. It's, I mean, when you, see, when you see a cross, you don't go, oh, look at that. A symbol of domination through violence. Get the fly off there. Get out of here, Satan. There's a fly on the cross. Beelzebub. No, we look at the cross and Jesus has transformed it. And now the cross is what? It's a symbol of what? Salvation through forgiveness. No longer is it domination through violence. It's salvation through forgiveness. But what does Constantine do? Or as the story is told, or as Christian faith gets all too entwined, tangled up with empire, what happens is the cross takes on its original meaning again. I mean, if you ask many Muslims in the Middle East what the cross, the symbol of the cross communicates to them, they don't say it symbolizes Salvation through forgiveness, they say it symbolizes domination through violence. So Christendom was deceived into thinking you can take up the cross and the sword simultaneously. They, they, get, they get put together. I've even seen with my own very eyes. I've seen a chapel where the cross hanging above the altar was replaced with a sword. Have I seen it, Perry? Perry saw it too. We have to choose between the theology of glory, victory, the sword, or a theology of the cross. One theology accommodates the world as it is. The other embraces kingdom come. And we say that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord right now. His throne is the cross, and he always rules in the form of cruciform, cruciform power, lamb power. Amen and amen. All right, enough of talking about the cross and the grand narrative of the big picture. Let's bring it home to where most of us live most of the time. Christ upon the cross is the posture that we, his followers, are to assume in the world. You know, as we leave our, our house, as we go to our day, whether that's literally or 
or metaphorically, how do we want to be present in the world? Like this, like this, like this, now like this. Not the angry, the clenched fist of angry protest, not the pointing finger of accusation, not the wagging finger of shame, but, well, that's, that's, why, that's why I pray. I mean, I mean, do I do it? Do I, am I really in the world in this posture? Sometimes. Not all the time. But at least I know what I, how I want it. I, I want that. I choose that. I fail too much. Too often I get, I want my way. I want my way. But so I still try, I, try, I not try, I do. I pray every day. I look at a cross and I say, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Now, here's the thing, though. We're tempted to look at that and go, that's not very appealing. That isn't what I want. That's a guy getting crucified. And that's what prompted Peter to say, this must never happen to you. Because when Peter says to Jesus, this must never happen to you, lurking behind that is, this must never happen to me. But remember, this is a, this is a, this is a portal. There is another side to this. There is another side. You know what's on the other side of that? Everything you ever wanted. Life. The peace and joy you're really looking for is on the other side of that. But you have to believe this person. You have to believe this one. But I believe him because he's the word of God, the son of God. That's why Jesus says, look, you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you hold, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake in the gospel... You'll find it. See, what happens is we hold on to our lives so tight. No, no, I can't die. I can't lose. I've got to win. And we hold on to our lives so tight that we distort it. We crush it. And, and we become distorted, ugly, who we were never meant to be. I mean, have you ever seen anyone that, that for whatever reason, They just fell deep into the black hole of self. And they really didn't appear to have any real concern about other people. They wanted the whole world to revolve around them, and they become ugly. They become a distorted self, a distorted life, a distorted soul. And that should always be a warning to us. That Jesus says, no, I know know it's paradoxical, but trust me, Jesus says, trust me, Jesus says, trust me. If you will go ahead and let go, trust me. Do it like I did it, Father. I put it in your hands. On the other side of that, you'll find what you're looking for. 
You'll find the life. You'll find the peace. You'll find the joy. You really will. You'll find the freedom. You'll find the liberty. And so that's why we pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Stand with me. You don't have to believe me, but try to believe Jesus. Try to believe Jesus. When he says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their soul, their life, will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake the sake of the gospel, save it. What, is it, what does it profit somebody? What do you get out of it? If you gain the whole world, you become the Roman emperor, you become whatever, and you lose your soul, who you were supposed to be. That kind, generous, loving person that bears the image of God that God created you to be. What, is it worth it to gain the world and lose that? Now then you're just on a long, long, long journey of recovery. So let's confess our Christian faith. You might pay us a little attention to a character from today's sermon who will appear in the creed and think about the dream that his wife had. And then we'll confess our sins and receive forgiveness and come to the table of the Lord. Confess with me, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God indeed is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table. 
not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.